This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Europa Editions, the publisher of Reproduction by Ian Williams, a moving, multi-generational novel about how strangers become family that the New York Times calls dazzling and the Toronto Star calls witty, playful, and disarmingly offbeat. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm joined remotely by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today we have an interview with Professor Frank Wilderson III about his new book, Afro-Pessimism, which asks, I think, a lot of important and urgent and truly challenging questions about how we address not only kind of the long histories of anti-Black violence, but also about how we address the ongoing history of that in the present, as we try to kind of, in his words, create a radically new world. Yeah, and it provides a really interesting context for understanding the current moment because, you know, as he says at a certain part of the interview, he's not talking to reformers. He's not interested in that. and Afro-pessimism is a really, it's a radical revolutionary idea that I'm glad we have a chance to discuss and to bring into the public discourse because it seems, it seems urgent, frankly. I mean, as an understanding of what, what it means to be a black person in the world and in the United States. So it's an important book I'm, and I'm, I'm really glad that we got Frank on the show. Yeah, me too. It's a really great conversation. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Let's do it. Today we're joined remotely by Frank B. Wilderson III, author, scholar, and professor and chairperson of African-American studies at UC Irvine and professor of the culture and theory PhD program at UC Irvine. Wilderson's latest book is called Afro-Pessimism, a memoir and critical theory hybrid that chronicles Wilderson's extraordinary life and articulates the tenets of an intellectual movement, also called Afro-Pessimism, which understands blackness through the lens of perpetual slavery. Wilderson was born in New Orleans, but he grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Minneapolis, Minnesota during the Civil Rights Movement. Both of his parents were intellectuals. His father was a professor and his mother a school administrator. But they disagreed with Wilderson, who was, and still is, a longtime radical and revolutionary. Wilderson's previous books include Red, White, and Black, and Incognito, a memoir of the years Wilderson spent in South Africa during the end of apartheid. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Frank, can we start with just kind of a lay person's definition of Afro-pessimism? A lay person's definition, okay. (laughs) I know that it's a critical theory, like you're coming out of that like space, but I want to just kind of give us like a little bit of something concrete to hang on to for listeners at the beginning. And you're saying we don't have 10 hours for this definition, right? (laughs) Personally, we do, but for the show, we don't. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) We'll stay on after. Yeah. Okay. So the way I, when I talk about undergraduates, I basically say that, look, if you take like 
the radical feminism of people like Judith Butler or Kaja Silverman, feminism that is not like Betty Friedan, in other words, feminism that is not interested in improving the lives of women inside of the structure of civil society, but feminism that is interested in the destruction of the Oedipal-oriented nuclear family so that something completely radically different can occur as opposed to expanding the rights and privileges of women inside of that. If you take the writing of Edward Said, people who are interested in the destruction of the settler and the destruction of colonialism, as opposed to people who are interested in how do you make the colonial situation more livable, for example, like a two-state system. If you take the writing of Karl Marx and people like that, people are interested in the destruction of the capitalist system, as opposed to people who are interested in how do you reform the abuses of capitalism. What you have are the master narratives of revolutionary thought. These are theories that ask the question or assert, make the assertion that society is unethical at its core and needs to be completely undone, not reformed from internal. And so Afro-pessimism starts out in agreement with the basic logic of revolutionary theory, which is completely inimical to the basic logic of reformist theory and says, we agree with you, civil society is unethical in its very assumptions, its basis of existence, its foundation. However, there's a big disagreement as to what is common in all these theories is that if you were to redress wholly the demands that embody the woman inside a patriarchy, if you were to redress wholly the demands that embody the colonial subject, if you were to redress wholly the demands that embody the worker, you would have the end of the world of those systems. And we're just arguing that we're in league with the desire, so we're not reformists. However, we would say that the subject of redress, whose redress would undo the world as we know it, are neither of those subjects, but is the slave slash black. That's the basic thing. And so so it starts off as a mode of, and we'll have to jump from theory to meta-theory, it starts off as a mode of analysis that people were doing in bits and pieces. David Marriott at UC Santa Cruz, Sadia Hartman, who's now the MacArthur Genius Award winner, who at that time was at UC Berkeley, and myself and Jared Sexton and Zakia Iman Jackson at, at Berkeley as critiquing the logic that says that Black people suffer essentially through economic exploitation, critiquing the logic of Marxism, critiquing the logic of feminism, which says that all women are women in a certain way. And we're like, no, Black women do not suffer in the way that non-Black women suffer. So we started off this as a meta-critique, which is a very abstract critical theory thing of critiquing critiques. But then something happened. Then Trayvon Martin was murdered. Then black transgender people started becoming noticeably more murdered. Then Michael Brown, then George Floyd. And what happened was that Afro-pessimism found its way into the subterranean spaces of the movement of black lives. So it moved from the academy into the streets as both a critique of black suffering and a meta-critique 
of those other forms of revolutionary thought that say that Black people are human subjects inside of the world. No, what we're arguing is that the human is not an organic entity. The human is a construct, just like the capitalist, just like men and women are not organic entities. They're constructed. And to have something that is an entity, to know it, you have to know its opposite. And so Black people have functioned as the noble opposite of the human race ever since the Arabs began the slave trade in 625 AD. And I can say more about that later, but that would be my very slow elevator speech. (laughs) Frank, this gets at some of the distinctions that I thought would be useful to draw, which is that sometimes, and, and I think that this is a trick of discourse and its power structures, which again, I don't want to get too critical theory right now, but that, you know, Afro pessimism, when I was like kind of looking up its critiques, none of which I think really hold that much water, to be honest. I think that there's like the kind of misconstruing of Afro-pessimism as, say, being apathetic or defeatist. And the way that you've defined it, I think, really powerfully, and this comes across really well in your book as well, that it's about action, right? It's about radical change, you know, and it's about addressing, as you've said, like these wholesale systems. And in a way that it sounds like, especially as you articulate it just now, that draws on the radical root of intersectional Black feminism, right? So another way of maybe pushing this into a question is like, how do you see Afro-pessimism as having been misunderstood in the present? Or how do you think it gets mischaracterized? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I mean, a lot of people hear the word and it's like, oh, you want us to be sad about our condition. We want to have hope about, you know, Black people. and I think that, you know, an intellectual historian will probably look back and say, no, what really happened is this guy in his age 41, he moves to Berkeley after having been purged from the ANC's Black American, and he gets involved with Jarrett Sexton, a Black American from the East Coast. They're all at Berkeley and Zakia Iman Jackson and Sadia Hartman and people, and they're involved in these struggles in the Bay Area, struggles for to make Bill Clinton pardon all political prisoners before George Bush is sworn into office. These these struggles to help Californians not vote for Prop 21, which will send 14-year-old kids to prisons. And what they're seeing is that, wow, when they're in these multiracial coalitions, there's this thing that happens in which there's an anxiety amongst people of color and radical white people, this anxiety about dealing with a problem for which there is no conceptual solution, which is the problem of Black suffering. And so the kibosh is put on this by these imperatives to find what we all have in common, rather than to understand that there's a person in the room who is actually the embodiment of cargo, not the embodiment of human subjugation. And that requires a completely different mode of analysis. And then the question becomes, the anxiety, what Jared Sexton calls the anxiety of antagonism happens with, if we can't figure out what can resolve this embodied cargo's issues, then we're just going to turn away from it and focus on what the kinds of suffering everyone has in common. So it actually is a question that begins with 
our work not as grad students, but our work as activists in the Bay Area. And we, then we bring it into the classroom as when we're doing Marxism, when we're doing psychoanalysis, when we're doing all these other things, and say, aha, here's the issue. The issue is that the radical left has not been able to understand how structural violence works. The radical left has always talked about violence in a performative capacity. So it does come out of struggle. And the pessimism is Antonio Gramsci in The Prison Notebooks has a line that we just kind of stole, right? Because I'd studied Gramsci under Edward Said at Columbia. And he writes, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And what he means by that is, in his time, what he means by that is pessimism of the intellectual production by progressives who think that you can make capitalism better. I'm pessimistic about that line of thought. I'm optimistic about the working class's ability to reject the values of capitalist civil society and burn it to the ground and create communism. So we are optimistic, especially in this moment, of the capacity of Black people to rip this whole thing apart. That's what we're optimistic about. We're pessimistic about the ways in which non-Black people try to massage and manage and adjust Black rage to something that could fit into their mode of suffering, and most importantly, fit into what they can emotionally handle. I'd really like to come back to this later, particularly because of the way that it fits in with the current moment, and and I want to hear your thoughts about that. But to go to the book, one of the things that's chronicled in the book is your life. And I mean, not all of it, of course. I mean, it's many, many lives lived as one, and I'm really in awe of the iterations that your life has taken. But so you grew up in a household where this was not necessarily the reigning paradigm. This was not the political paradigm under which your parents raised you. You're laughing because, you know, that's abundantly clear in the book. Laughing because you're such a diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So one of the interesting things about the book is your progression to an Afro-pessimist point of view. But to go back Talk about where you started. Can you talk about the life that you, the political life and the political opinions that you grew up with as a child? Yes. My grandfather was, you know, I consult traditional healers, what we call Babalaos, who were the practitioners of Wudan in New Orleans, and Babalao comes from Cuba. And one of the things that interesting, they can talk to ancestors, African ancestors. And one of the things they wow. told me that my grandfather really loved what I was doing and my father's spirit loved it, but he couldn't say it, you know, which was, which was very clarifying. Oh, wow. <laughs> my grandfather started an NAACP chapter in this marsh country. It's actually the exact spot where 12 Years a Slave took place. And so he was very much kind of frontline, confrontational type. And also, like me, he was an Aries, which I think Aries understand nothing but war. So my father's a Capricorn. So it's like... When my dad's father died very early in my father's career, my father's college career, and he found out that my granddad had spent all the money that should have been for his little country store and the little nursery school that he ran for sugarcane choppers kids. It had been all spent on his political activities. I think, and this is a projection, that my father wanted stability in his life 
and he did not want to die at the age of 42, hounded by the Klan. And so when my parents came north in 1958, when I was two years old, I think that this was a time when it was possible for Black people with college degrees to do something. You know, that period when affirmative action is going to start in the 60s and whatever. So they fundamentally believed that this project called America could have enough elasticity to make Black people citizens. And I was seeing as a young child two things happening because I'm the oldest and I watched them continuously very closely that they suffered in the way that the Black bourgeoisie suffers horrendously, but cannot articulate this because people will say to you, what's the deal? I mean, you've got PhDs, you live in a 22-room house, you've got a late cabin, and you're talking about life is too hard to go on, you know? So I could see the dual way, the kind of double consciousness that Du Bois talks about, which was as debilitating to the psyche as being hounded by the police in the ghetto, but you're not dodging bullets at that rate. So you have to actually, there's no way to actually get people to agree or see what your suffering is. And so I really, really inculcated the intensity of their suffering at the same time in which they were articulating a kind of Martin Luther King upward mobility thing. And also I was the only Black kid for the first year at this very shishi public school, but in the richest part of town. And then my sister came along, so we were the only two. And and as a guy, I was in a lot of fistfights, you know. And so when the riots happened in 1968, I was 12 years old, I experienced a great sense of joy and relief just at, you know, what Bachelard, the great French philosopher, calls the psychoanalysis of fire. And so I then had to parent myself through choosing my parents as the Panthers and other people whose energy met my energy as opposed to moving in the line that my parents were thinking of, because I don't like this country. I don't think it has a right to exist. I don't think it's ethical. And I don't think it can be reformed. On that kind of that note, I'm wondering if what's like a kind of Afro-pessimist reading of the kind of current global protest movement against anti-Black police violence. I'm wondering this in a couple of ways, like both how does an Afro-pessimist kind of, let's say, a critical frame or a lens, as you describe it in the book, help us to see both the present as evocative of precisely what has not changed, the urgent, the kind of underlying rot that hasn't changed, but also what does the Afro-pessimist lens see as potential within the contemporary movement? That's a good question. And I think the jury is still out. I mean, here's what typically happens. One of the things that Afro-pessimism argues is that in the libidinal economy, which is to say the collective unconscious of global civil society, there's a disconnect between the language of the unconscious and the language of the conscious mind. So the language of the conscious mind will say that all black people are citizens and humans. But the language of the unconscious mind makes a distinction. And Frantz Fanon writes about this very well, you know, in Black Skin, White Mask, in which he says, the Jew stimulates anxiety when the person Mm. knows the entity before them is Jewish. The Jew has to appear through actions, through words, through dialogue, and the Jew 
threatens in Scarecourt's normal white world through the concepts that the Jew embodies. In other words, they'll take over the banking system. They get all the best places in college, that kind of thing. But the black stimulates anxiety through his, her, or their body, not through his, her, or their ideas. There's no such thing as the world being afraid of a black agenda because no one listens to black people. People respond to black suffering when black people start to burn shit down. There's no way to actually, and you can read the declassified documents of the CIA, the FBI, and like the Maryland intelligence branch of the Maryland State Police when they're talking about the Black Liberation Army and Asada Shakur and people like that. One of the things that you find is this big gaping hole where the intelligence officers have to articulate what conceptually do black people threaten? There's no such thing as a big gaping hole when these police intelligence people write about what do the Puerto Ricans threaten? They threaten the removal of Puerto Rico from as a territory. The Indian threatens the removal of white civil society and the return to native cosmology and ways of governing. But the black is this terrifying threat for which there is no language. It's an embodied threat. And so coming full circle to your question, one of the issues that you know I'm cautious about is to what degree can these global movements keep a bead on the singularity of Black suffering and the singularity of anti-Black violence, or to what degree, just like we witnessed in the Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco Bay Area back in the 90s, to what degree will they harness Black rage and Black energy to talk about a whole range of problems that actually can be conceptually solved to avoid what is called the anxiety of antagonism, to avoid the anxiety of talking about the condition of Black suffering, for which there is no actual conceptual redress answer. It is a question that cannot be redressed, but must be addressed. And so when does this thing shift to become multi-culti and multi-racial and loses the focus of Black suffering? That's what I'm cautious about. And I'm more cautious about it in places like the United States than in South Africa, where Afro-pessimism is like the ur-text of on-the-ground revolutionary movements that are moving against white power and moving against the corrupt ANC. I'm happy about that because it's Afro-pessimism has really permeated the most radical organizing spaces in South Africa. And if people want to learn more about that, I did a three-part interview that it's online on the Mail and Guardian over the last few days in South Africa. But I'm, I'm not so optimistic. I'm worried about what that's going to look like when a bunch of other people happen along and we find that, like we found in the North Bay Area, Black people become refugees in a multicultural project and the bottom falls out in terms of understanding how we suffer differently than others. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Professor Frank Wilderson III, author of Afro-Pessimism. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I'm joined today by writer and translator Joyce Sonana. 
Her most recent translation is a novel called Malacroix by Henri Basco, recently released for the first time in English by the New York Review of Books Classics series. Joyce is here to give us a book recommendation. Joyce, what book are you going to recommend? So the book I'm going to recommend is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Okay, tell us more. (laughs) So it's a book that I've read many, many times and that I think is somehow an underrated book, even though many people read it and many people say that they love it. It's a book that's somehow not taken seriously. It's thought of as a children's book. It's thought of as maybe a sentimental novel. And I think of it as actually a very important book that is worthy of attention as as an American novel. So that's why I'm recommending it. I have to admit that that is also how I've thought of it, but I also don't really remember reading it. I think I read it as a child. Exactly, Um, yeah. What do you think is so important about it? So it's a really detailed, explicit story about growing up in poverty, about having dreams of being someone. The main character, Francie, hopes to be a writer and... That's an explicit thread all the way through the book. There's an enormous sensitivity to language. Like from the very first page, she's thinking about what are the right words to use to describe Brooklyn. And she starts out thinking about a Longfellow poem, Evangeline. And then she says, no, 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 that doesn't fit. Brooklyn. We have to find a different kind. And I mean, she doesn't say this explicitly, but I I think Betty Smith is saying we have to find a different kind of language to talk about urban life. And I think that she's reaching for that in this novel that was published in 1943. It was a bestseller in its time, an enormous bestseller. And I think it still has something to speak to us today about being female, about growing up, about sexuality. There's an enormous amount of stuff about sexuality in the book that's very surprising for its time. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful story. Well, these are all great reasons to revisit what others might consider an old classic. Exactly. Can you tell us yeah. the title of the book again and the author? Absolutely. It's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Thank you so much, Joyce. Thank you, Medea. Thank you. We've been talking to writer and translator Joyce Zonana. Her recent translation is a novel called Malacroix by Henri Basco. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Professor Frank Wilderson III, author of Afro-Pessimism. Right. So that, cause that, that gets it like a, a re, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm just interested in connecting this to kind of, I guess, the potential pitfalls of these political movements. Like what I find very productive about Afro-pessimism is it's turning our attention constantly to the, the root of the problem, right? So one of the things that I just want to clarify is that part of what you're saying is that when you bring in these other discourses, which kind of elsewhere you will describe as the kind of flattening, right? That it's like queer suffering is like black suffering, like the flattening and into the simile, right? So when that happens, is that where we 
turn away from the central canker, or to use my earlier term, the kind of the rot that undergirds the the whole system that you're saying is unethical? I think so. I think that to be simple without being simplistic, you know, you you could read the work, say, of of Cecilio M. Cooper, and I quote them uh, as one of the opening epigraphs in in my book with, with Fanon. And I would say that I would encourage people to read the work of people like Cecilia, uh, trans Black people who are articulating mm. the suffering of transness and the suffering of slaveness through Afro-pessimism. Read the work of Zaki Iman Jackson and Sadia Hartman, who are talking about the singularity of what it means to be a Black woman, so mm. that you cannot actually talk about rape in the same register in Black female sexuality as you can talk about it in non-Black female sexuality. In other words, what we're saying is, and this is part of, I'm going to try not to be too critical theory language-like, but one of the things that we're doing in in the workshops and classrooms in Berkeley, we're saying that, look, there's a common thread between the suffering of the indigenous person, the suffering of the, the uh, non-black f- feminist woman, the suffering of the post-colonial subject, and the suffering of the Marxist worker. And this common thread is that these systems of oppression are set up by oceans of violence that sometimes take a hundred or more years to set up before you have a paradigm. But once they're set up and people start calling themselves and inculcating in their psyche these artificial categories like woman, so that people say the word woman and think that it is actually an organic entity Mm -hmm. as opposed to a construct, or say Mm -hmm. uh, post-colonial subject, or say indigenous person, or whatever. Then, at that moment, when those subjects have across the board primarily inculcated the structural position that they occupy in the paradigm, the, the ocean of violence that was needed to create say, a paradigm of capitalism, goes away. You actually don't want an ocean of violence when the workers are disciplined and have inculcated things like you must work hard, meritocracy, as opposed to what you really should think as a working class person, that as Bertolt Brecht said, there is no crime in robbing a bank. The only crime is in starting one. Once you... Once you feel a moral guilt about shoplifting, once you feel a moral guilt about armed expropriation, then the violence of the paradigm goes under the table and, and doesn't come up until you resist the hegemony, until you have a Cuban revolution, until you go on strike, until you try to cross the border down by San Diego. But the thing is that black, anti-black violence doesn't work like that. And they should read Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death to understand this. The thing about anti-Black violence is that the, the gratuitous rituals of murdering and reproducing Black people are necessary even when the Black has submitted in his, her, or their unconscious. That is really profound, that we need these spectacles of anti-Black violence to be a psychic healing bomb, B-A-L-M, for all other people who say, yeah, that could happen to me. Mm. But if it happened to me, I have to transgress the laws of my oppression. It happens to Black people because it's a spectacle of pleasure and renewal for non-Blacks. And this is what we have to understand by by the difference of structural violence for Black people and the difference in structural violence for all others. You mentioned earlier, and this is related to what you were just talking about, is that um, is keeping your eye on that, right? As on, on that fundamental difference. How? I mean, it seems 
within activists or within a classroom, it seems easier because you have a dedicated audience for you and you have use, you can set your agenda there. How do you do that in an activist setting? How have you found that you can do this? <laughs> With very little success. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it sounds very hard. It's very hard. I mean, that's the $64,000 question. Mm-hmm. And part of it has to do with, you know, I opened the book. It has to do with the problem of Black articulation. In other words, one of the kind of big takeaway points that I'm trying to make in the book is that Black people are always incarcerated. Other people get incarcerated. So there's no such thing as a, as a space where Black people live, even, you know, in the Presidio or, or in Beverly Hills, that is not a space of lockdown. And I just think that when political organizing happens, it typically happens to resolve a particular issue that everyone can wrap their head around. And so what you have is a situation in which uh, there's symptomatic speech from Black people saying, "Uh, hello, over here in this corner of the room, here we are with a problem that you can't wrap your head around and doesn't have an end goal kind of reform thing that that will help us. And rather than being, you know, and this is where, this is the difference, you know, I, I used to think that, okay, progressives can't get to that and revolutionaries can, but, you know, I think that both have problems, you know, rather than saying, oh, wow, okay, so let's have two chains running. Let's try and resolve this issue that we're dealing with, but be thankful that our mobilization has opened up a space where now we can do intellectual work in spaces away from the academy on problems that we don't have solutions for. Aren't we happy that we can now actually have a revolutionary space where we can address the state to make conceptual concessions or, or agree to our demands? And at the same time, we've got this big political education space open to having this meditative revolutionary thought about what does it mean to be an immigrant what does it mean to be a native person on one side compared to what does it mean to be in the minds of everyone a piece of property? And wow, isn't it great that we can talk about these things now? No, instead, what happens on the black side is, is that the mind says, and this is what I was trying to say in the opening part with, with my mental breakdown, the mind says, I don't want these people to feel like I'm a burden. So I want them to feel safe. So I'm not going to raise all the issues that I would raise in, in a black space. And then the other people are like, you know. I'm trained in Anglo-American pedagogy, and they don't understand that the bane of being trained in a British-American system of education is that teachers are always linking problems to solutions. That's a bad, bad way of teaching. A bad, bad way of teaching has now gotten into the DNA of how we think. Well, that raises an interesting question. What, what do you think is a better way of teaching? Well, you know, this thing came up through Matthew Arnold in 1869, interesting that he was writing at the same time Marx was writing Das Kapital, in which he was saying, you know, you've got to educate the working class, otherwise they will rise up and find the answers on their own in the streets as they destroy our system. So what we need is an educational system with enough elasticity to allow the working class into it for training, but the terms of debate have to be bound so that the problems must find solutions in the world as it exists. Otherwise, 
they're going to, through their mobilization in the streets, find their own solutions, and they will be far beyond what we as the bourgeoisie can accept. And so this is the confining ideological nature of the structure of teaching that has plagued Britain and Canada and the United States and the Commonwealth for centuries, because people don't believe that first we can burn this shit down and then we can find the answers afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I was wondering is why do you think there's, there's such a difference between the, you, you were saying earlier that in South Africa, Afro-pessimism has sort of seeped in, that it's an urtext to the political realities there. The differences between South Africa and, and the United States are myriad, but what has allowed Afro-pessimism to become so much more accessible there in that climate than here? Well, there's a sense, I mean, you know, in, in South Africa, I was there for five and a half years. The time I left at the end of 96 and moved to LA, there were something like 35 uh, million black people of eight different ethnicities. And then there was a small so-called colored major- uh, pop, uh, minority. And then there was a small Indian community. And then there were just 15 million people divided between uh, Afrikaners, English, and, and Huguenots. So what you had was not only a black majority kind of ethnically, you know, in terms of skin color population, you also had um, a parts were, that were second world, parts that were third world, parts that were, were first world, a highly industrialized uh, country. And into the 90s, well beyond, you know, several years beyond the fall of the Soviet Union, you had uh, people talking about a communist takeover in the millions and not speaking of it ironically and not speaking of it with the kind of fear of retribution. So there's a zeitgeist of revolutionary fervor that permeated South Africa, you know, at least since the Sharpeville massacre in the, in the 1960s, all the way beyond the fall of the Soviet Union. And here what you have is people who think they can make this project better, but in reality, I mean, people on the left, but in reality, they're so terrified of the retribution of 3 million people in uniform, hundreds of thousands of police everywhere. The, the way in which this, this country has, you know, it, it's, it's just murder incorporated. So people actually think that they're talking logically and responsibly about certain reforms, defund the police, make them more accountable. But what is really going on more fundamentally is that they are so afraid of what this state can do to you. And they're so fearful that they don't have the collective power to be up against it because they have seen what COINTELPO has done. They've seen what the state has done around the world in Central America and to produce Lumumba and every, you know, they understand where they are and yet they have to disavow it as a murderous entity and call it a democracy that needs some adjustment. That's not the case in South Africa. So Frank, just to kind of bring this to a close, I want to ask about the future, but it occurs to me that like asking about the the future is is fraught in that way because there's always kind of an implicit, I think, or maybe this is coming from my like readings and queer studies, a kind of implicit optimism about the future that oftentimes 
queer theory, critical race, they draw those things into kind of contest, right? Or to kind of challenge our thinking about that is always necessarily optimistic. But I guess, uh, let me think about a question about the future in a slightly different way, which is, how could we get beyond the kind of impasse that you're talking about, right? So let's take this example of like the fear of state violence, right? As an impediment, as as a true and real barrier, social and psychological to kind of enacting the change that is urgent, that needs to be done, the new world that needs to be brought into being. Like, what are some steps that you think we might be able to take to do that? Okay. I have nothing to say to reformers. I think that people should understand that. In other words, I'll talk to anybody, really. But <laughs> Right. No, I, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I should careful, be careful about that because the dean might be listening or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no one in my class must pass a political litmus test to be, you know. So, I, I mean, I have a way of being in the classroom, which is open and generous. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know what your ideas are. You're just here to learn. We're here for three hours a week. And uh, I'm not trying to recruit you for anything. But in the life that I care about, I'm really in conversation with people who are writing and acting about the end of civil society as it's structured, okay? Not people who are writing and acting principally about how to make civil society more elasticity and reform mm-hmm. its, its practices. And so to those people, I would say, open your hearts and open your minds to the embodiment of a problem for which there is no solution. You can write a sentence which is hyperbolic, but it's still conceptual about what would it take to redress Native suffering. And that is just give them North, South, and Central America back, period. Either vacate or abdicate. Right. I mean, that's conceptually coherent. I don't, I don't want to talk about whether it's possible or not, but just do it. But you cannot actually say what it would take to redress the suffering of an embodied sentient being who has been robbed of subjectivity, robbed of everything, and turned into property in the minds and in practice. And so as a revolutionary, you must be open to those voices, even when they contradict how you've thought about redress, you know, because okay. that's what you're about. So that would be that would be a first step. And the next thing is is Ward Churchill of the American Indian Movement. He said, um, when people said, well, it's not possible for Indians to get their land back, he said, would you please go to the map and show me the Soviet Union on that map over there? And the room was stifled because you can't do it. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. So if you're really revolutionary, you have to inculcate it in your spirit as well as in your thinking that this country is not sacred, and it is damn sure not eternal. And once you do that, then you don't have to worry about getting your gains in your lifetime. You put protracted on the front of the word struggle, and you just move on. Wow. That's great. That's an amazing place to end. Yeah. Actually, one last question posed by my partner, which was, were you Prince's bodyguard? No, no, no. I was a bouncer in Prince's nightclub in the summer of 1978. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Prince was in 10th grade 
and he played at parties when I was in 12th grade. And there's a band called The Time that was in my class. And every, so, I, I mean, I, I'd seen him and met him. But, you know, in 1974, Prince, when I graduated from high school, Prince wasn't Prince, you know. When I, four years later, he was Prince. And he owned yeah. a nightclub downtown, and I worked as a bouncer there. But I don't think I ever met him at that nightclub. Well, small world. Okay, great. I'm glad that I can tell my husband that <laughs> <laughs> he's been spreading lies that he heard in Oakland. <laughs> Thank you again, Frank, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Frank B. Wilderson III. His latest book is called Afro-Pessimism. Thank you for listening to the Live Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.